You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth. Deliverer, Redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend request me or follow me and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. Today is uh, the 6th of May, 2021. The guest call in line is 917-889-8827. Oh, you're kind of breaking up, so I will take over that. I can't really hear you breaking up. Um, But today we're going to be reading. Oh, I can hear you now. Are you there? Yeah, I was just saying it's the 21st day of May 2021, and I will mute myself until 
Yeah, I'm out of the Huntington And the guest call-in number, we couldn't 20. really hear. Okay. The, the guest call-in number, I'm going to repeat just in case anybody didn't hear it. It's 917-889-8827. It, it's hard for him to uh, talk right now. He is up towards the mine, and he will get on in just a minute, in a little bit. Um, so tonight is a continuation of what we were reading yesterday. This is going to be the Catholics. Part 3 of Chapter 11 of Holy Priesthood, Volume 4, pages 120 to 130. Um, and we need to say the opening prayer also. Um, I was just thinking about that before I get into the reading. Um, since he is not able to, I will give the prayer tonight. Our Father in Heaven... We thank thee for this time that we have to learn of thee, learn thy words, understand what thou would have us learn about, and help us, Father, to please be open-minded and understanding that we might receive your witness tonight. We ask the special blessing on those who are listening to this program, who are honest followers of God who are humble followers of thee. We ask blessings for the things that their hearts are needing at this time, Father. Help us to be able to answer questions, even if it puts us on tangents. Help us to be able to speak to those that you would have hear your word tonight. We are truly grateful, Lord, for the time that thou gives us to be able to do this. And we hope to have thy spirit to be with us this day and say these things in the name of your son, Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Okay, so let's get right into that. The Catholics, part three of chapter 11 of all the Holy, or of Holy Priesthood, volume four, pages 120 to 130. For as the eternal law, that is the will of God, the creator of all, for the preservation of the natural order permits the indulgence of the bodily appetite under the guidance of reason and sexual intercourse, not for the gratification of passion, but for the continuance of the race through the procreation of children. So, on the contrary, the unrighteous law of the Manichaeans, hopefully that's right, Manichaeans, in order to prevent their God, whom they bewail, as confined in all seeds, from suffering still closer confinement in the womb requires married people not on any account to have children, their great desire being to liberate their God. Instead, therefore, of an irrational craving in Abraham to have children, we find in Manichaeus an irrational fancy against having children. So the one preserved the natural order by seeking in marriage only the production of a child, while the other, influenced by his hierarchical notions, thought no evil could be greater than the confinement of his God. And then it has three asterisks, which I am not sure if this means it's going to be a quote or not, as it wasn't yesterday. And it says, For Sarah did not conceive, or I'm sorry, for Sarah did not connive at any criminal action in her husband for the gratification of his unlawful passion, but from the same natural desire for children that he had. And knowing her own barrenness, she warrantability claimed as her own 
the fertility of her handmaid, not consenting with sinful desires in her husband, but requesting of him what it was proper in him to grant. Nor was it the request of a pr- of proud assumption, for every one knows that the duty of a wife is to obey her husband. In reference to the body, we are told by the apostle that the wife has power over her husband's body as he has over hers. So, that while in all other social matters the wife ought to obey her husband in this one matter of their bodily connection, as a man and a wife, their power over one another is mutual. The man over the woman and the woman over the man. So, when Sarah could not have children of her own, she wished to have them by her handmaid and of the same seed from which she herself would have had them, if that had been possible. No woman would do this if her love for her husband were merely an animal passion. She would rather be jealous of a mistress than make her a mother. So here, the pious desires of the procreation of children was an indication of the absence of criminal indulgence. Um, That is the end of page 121 or the beginning of page 121. If you're there and have anything to say, you can go ahead and do that. I'm good. Oh, there you go. Okay. I didn't know if you were still out of service or not. Okay. Um, Continuing on. We may thus easily understand how Abraham, seeing that his wife was barren. um, Sorry. I'm getting confirmed that your passkey to pair with Mark's iPhone. Are you trying to pair with me right now? (laughs) No. Okay. I'm actually dumping just... on the Grizz at the power plant at Huntington. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I'm sorry. It was just there was like a notification uh, like popping up, and I ignored it a few times, and then I was like, okay, it was doing it again and again. So I figured I would ask in case it was like something that you were trying to do, and I kept ignoring. So, okay. <laughs> um. Sorry, we may best easily understand how Abraham, seeing that his wife was barren and that she desired to obtain from her husband and her handmaid the offspring which she herself could not produce, acted not in compliance with carnal appetite but in obedience to conjugal authority, believing that Sarah had the sanction of God for her wish because God had already promised him an heir from his own body but had not foretold who was to be the mother. And that is the, uh, there's the ending of that asterisk right there, uh, but doesn't say anything about it. Abraham was not an adulterer. When in submission to the lawful authority of his wife, he consented to be made a father by his wife's handmaid. But from the natural, or from the nature of the relationship for a wife to have two husbands, both in life is not the same thing as for a man to have two wives. That we regard the explanation already given of Abraham's conduct as the most correct and unobjectionable. Jacob, the son of Isaac, is charged with having committed a great crime because he had four wives. But here there is no ground for a criminal accusation, for a plurality of wives was no crime when it was the custom. There are sins against nature and sins against custom, and sins against the laws, in which then of these senses did Jacob sin in having a plurality of wives. As regards nature, he used the woman not for sensual gratification, but for the procreation of children. For custom, this was common practice at the time in those countries. 
And for the laws, no prohibition existed. And it says IBID, which I'm pretty sure was from the same um, book that we were talking about yesterday. Um, do you remember what that was off the top of your head, Mark? The last one was uh, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, I thought. Oh, yes, you're right. That is. So maybe it's from that um, because it doesn't give me any other information. Okay. Um, Augustine gave a punch at Faustus when he stated, and so the mistake arises of supposing that no one could have had, no one could ever have had many wives, but from the sensuality, sorry, this for some reason keeps beeping. It's telling me to pair with your iPhone. Do you have your iPhone? I have my phone. It's with me in the truck. For some reason, um, it keeps sending me notifications to pair. Confirm my pass key to pair with your iPhone. Uh, nope. What is the deal? Okay, guess what I'm going to do. Titan. I'm going to turn <laughs> off the... Sorry. I'm turning it off. So we'll stop doing that. Okay. Okay. Of course. And because I did that, it now where I was reading. So I'm getting right back into that because I'm sorry that there was that distraction, but I just turned it off, so now there is none. (laughs) Okay. Augustine wrote many pages of justification and explanation for a plural marriage, and his arguments and reasoning are illogical, original, and have a depth of understanding not often found in other defenses of polygamy. Hold on one second. I just want to make sure that I'm in the right place. <laughs> I think I skipped a paragraph, so I'm going to go back. Sorry. Augustine gave a punch at the Faustus, at Faustus when he stated, and so the mistake arises of supposing that no one could ever have had many wives but from sensuality and the vehemence of sinful desires, unable to form an idea of men whose force of mind is beyond their conception. They compare themselves with themselves, as the apostle says, and no make, and so make mistakes, conscious that their intercourse through with though with one wife only, they are often influenced by mere animal passion instead of an intelligent motive. They think it an obvious interference that if the limits of moderation are not observed where there is only one wife, the infirmity must be aggravated where there are more than one. But those who have not the virtues of temperance must not be allowed to judge of the conduct of holy men. And that also says, I bid. Augustine wrote many pages of justification and explanation for plural marriage. And his arguments and reasoning are logical, original, and have depth of understanding not often found in other defenses of polygamy. John Carnecross acknowledged and respected these great Catholic scholars for their honesty 
Not only is there nothing in the Bible contrary to polygamy, the fathers of the church, Augustine and Jerome, did not condemn it in the Old Testament. In early Christian times, it was common. Even Charlemagne had several wives. It was the only evil spirit which prevented polygamy from becoming customary. Gradually, priestcraft became more and more powerful. It is all the fault of the devil and Rome. The church imposed not only monogamy, but the celibacy of the priest, and also church control of marriage, which had formerly been a civil affair. And that says, after polygamy was made a sin by Karen Cross, page 80. Will Durant said that, that during the years 511 through five, or 614 A.D., the heads of France generated at aristocracy. They were proud of their long beards and silken robes and almost as polygamous, uh, almost as, polygamous as any Muslim, save Mohammed, end quote. Story of Civilization, Volume 4, page 93. Even in 628, King Dagobert Dagobert, had three wives. Um, This is beginning page 123. Did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I'm just listening. It's amazing that I can even hear you right now. So, little blessing. (laughs) Yay, we'll take it. Um, Justinian II summoned a council to meet in Constantinople Constantinople, in 1692. This council group claimed all the privileges that the Pope of Rome did in his council decisions. One of the new doctrines permitted marriage to deacons and presbyters. The, con- the condemned the Roman prohibition of such marriages, or and condemned, sorry, the Roman pr- prohibition of such marriages. The Greek Church still maintains this permission. End quote. The History of the Christian Church, W. Walker, Volume 2, page 147. Charlemagne the Great, from 17, or 742 to 841, succeeded to the throne as king of the Franks and annexed France and a large part of Germany in 800 AD. He was proclaimed Caesar by Pope Leo III. As an emperor, he spread Christianity and learning throughout the empire. The New Modern Encyclopedia, page 213. Strangely enough, this man had several wives. For many years, the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church had mixed opinions on plural marriage, and apparently the popes never instigated any definite doctrine against it until the year 1860, or 866. The occasion was when Prince Bulgaris of Bulgaria with many of his people, joined the church, plural marriage was a major concern to them. They wrote to the Pope for the official view on the subject. Pope Nicholas I wrote, quote, Therefore, if one is found to have two wives at the same time, he is to be compelled to lose one and keep the first. Uh, can polygamy be... Sorry, now I'm getting a phone call. And I'm trying to you know, the only, get back into it. You can you, you can take the phone call if you want. I can talk for a minute. Nope, I'm good. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, uh, the only problem with the whole uh, keep your first wife, like whatever. Um, so how mean in the Torah and before the Torah was even given, God instituted and allowed polygamy, but He never liked divorce. So, I don't know. I just, 
you know, this is just the doctrine of men mingled with scripture. That's all that is. Yeah, um, let me end that quote. So that quote was actually okay. from Can Polygamy Be Compatible with Christianity by Jesuit priest Francisco Eurisha, page 275. Sorry, that's when it cut out on me right when I was trying to say that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool, just because I think it's cool, um, mm-hmm. I'm actually a direct descendant of Charlemagne, and uh, Kim's seen that genealogy, and I'm a direct descendant of Charlemagne through the kings and queens of Scotland. So I think that's cool. I, all the genealogy is fun. I, every time I hear Charlemagne, I'm like, oh, hey, that's my great granddaddy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, are we done? Okay, I'll go. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know when you're going to stop. Okay. In 1201, Pope Innocent III explained that plural marriage was lived in ancient times for two reasons. Quote, the Old Testament apparent acceptance of polygamy, which theology for a long time interpreted in terms of dispensation for the multiplication of God's chosen people, is one, and without any doubt, that it was never listed to anyone unless it was granted by divine revelation. Um, I bid 200, page 277, and I guess that's from Can Polygamy Be Compatible with Christianity by Jesuit Priest Francisco Eurisha, page 277. With two such good reasons, one could question why it should not be continued today. But this Catholic bar against plural marriage has continued up to recent times. On March 5, 1980, Pope John Paul II spoke to spoke in Zaire, Africa, and asked the Africans to give up their plural wives. The Catholic Church, like the Mormon, has gone through gradual changes in their beliefs and practices, but true principles, eternal laws, and perpetual ordinances do not change. St. Thomas Aquinas, from 1225 to 1274, called the angelic doctor, was an Italian-Dominican friar. He was the most famous and probably the most influential of the medieval scholastic philosophers. His extensive education qualified him to be a professor of theology at at the University of Paris. For nine years, he studied, wrote, and taught at papal courts in Italy and organized the Center of Theological Studies. Thomas's most famous work, the Summa Theologica, is a vast and closely argued summary of his doctrinal position on most, almost all subjects. He wrote many other works besides such as commentaries, a series, a series of major works on special topics, numerous ex, ex, or exegetical, 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 sorry, <laughs> works, explanations of the four gospels and minor works of considerable variety. I don't even know what that means, exegetical, exegetical works. Weird. Um, and then my phone just switched and now I have to find myself again. But at least you know exactly where I was because I couldn't read that one word, nor do I know what it means. Um, so page 125. Uh, did you have anything to say before I continue on? No. Okay. From the foregoing brief description of Thomas Thomas's doctrine, it should be apparent that Thomas accomplished a vast archi- um, architectonic 
architectonic union of theology and philosophy. His Summa Theologica is aptly named American People's Encyclopedia, 18, Volume 18, page 120 and 122. Here was a profound thing. Here was a profound thinker whose mind ranged over every aspect of men's lives and became one of the greatest intellectual lights of the Catholic Church. Even though the church had made an objection to plural marriage about 400 years before Thomas's time, he still maintained a respect for the principle and those who lived it. Catholic priest Father Hiltman stated, quote, Thomas Aquinas also understood the sacramentality of marriage, sacramentality of marriage, in such a way as to allow, at least theoretically, for a plurality of life. In answering those who felt that fidelity in sacrament could not possibly be maintained when one man is joined to several wives, St. Thomas affirmed that fidelity and the sacrament were not entirely absent in polygamous, a polygamous union. That's, end quote, polygamy reconsidered, Hillman, page 203. In Thomas's own words, he wrote, quote, Now the faith to be kept with God is of greater importance than the faith to be kept with a wife, which is reckoned a marriage good, and that the sanctification which pertains to the sacrament, since the signification is subordinate to the knowledge of faith, hence it is not unfitting if something is taken from the two for the sake of the good of offspring, nor are they entirely done away, since there remains faith towards several wives. And the sacrament remains after a fashion, for though it did not signify the union of Christ with the church as one, nevertheless, the plurality of life signified the distinction of degrees in the church, which distinction is not only in the church militant, but also in the church triumphant. Consequently, their marriages signified somewhat the union of Christ, not only with the church militant, as some say, but also with the church triumphant, where they are Many, where there are many mansions. John 19.2, also Summa Theologia, Theologi, Supplement, page 65. Going back in time, the northern were Teutons who came up through Denmark into Sweden and Norway. And early chief Dan Michiliati gave his name to Denmark, Dan's March. Norge, or Norway, was taken from the Northway. Their chiefs in the 10th century made inroads to those countries. Harold Bluetooth from 945 to 85 gave Denmark Christianity and King Olaf Skottkanung made Sweden Christian. I think I'm butchering a lot of these names because they're um, foreign to me. These great leaders often had wives and concubines. For instance, a leader called Hafton. The black subdued most of Norway to become its first king. So his name is Hafton the Black. Okay. His son, Harold Harfager, from 860 to 933, was challenged by rebellious chieftains. Gaida, whom he wooed, refused to marry him, until he should conquer all Norway, he vowed never to clip or comb his hair till it was done. He accomplished it in 10 years, married Gaida and nine other women, cut his hair, and received his distinguishing name, the Fair-Haired. Olaf, son of Trigiv, Trigiv, 
was a great-grandson of Harold of the Fair Hair. He was a very merry, frolicsome man and snorry of Iceland, gay and social, very generous and finical in his dress, stout and strong, the handsomest of men, excelling in bodily exercises every Norseman that ever was heard of. He could run across the oars outside his ship while men were rowing, could juggle three sharp-pointed daggers, could cast two spears at once, and could cut equally well with either hand. Many a quarrel he had, and many an adventure. While in the British Isles, he was converted to Christianity and became its merciless advocate. When he was made king of Norway in 995, he destroyed pagan temples, built Christian churches, and continued to live in polygamy. The Bonders opposed the new religion fiercely and demanded that Olaf should make sacrifice to Thor, as in the ancient ritual. He agreed, but proposed to offer Thor the most acceptable sacrifice, the leading Bonders themselves, whereupon they became Christians. Another Olaf, called the Saint, reunited Norway in, in 1016, restored order, gave righteous judgment, and completed the conversion of the land to Christianity. He was a good and very gentle man, says Snorri, of little speech, and open-handed but greedy of money, and slightly addicted to concubines. End quote. The Story of Civilization, Will Durant, Volume 4, page 502 and 03. Okay, that you can talk anything about if you need to right there. That's a break. He's slightly addicted to concubines. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, I just came off of uh, horseshoes, so it's not a good area for me to talk. Oh, okay. It was obvious at this time that both Catholic and Protestant theologians could accept the doctrinal aspect of the plural marriage, but not the practice of it. That does not mean no one lived it, even emperors such as Charlemagne, Lothair, and Pepin had officially accepted several wives, Carncross oh, noted. Quote, it is worth recalling that the 13th century Frederick II, the master of southern Italy, carried over the traditions left by the long Muslim, Muslim occupation of Sicily by himself keeping a harem and by officially tolerating polygamy among his Christian subjects. There is no record of a papal pro- protest against his policy. After polygamy was made, oh, sorry, end quote. After polygamy was made, a sin, page 64. It is recorded that Montezuma, the king of Mexico, had a very large family of wives and children. Historian A.F. Tillard stated that in 1437, King Henry IV of Castile Castile married Dofia Blanca, but had no children. So the Pope granted him permission to marry a second wife. But the condition was that if she, too, had no children, he must go back to only his first wife. See Henry VIII, page 207, a similar decree by Pope Gregory II was given in 726 A.D. Durant said that polygamy was practiced by the rich till the 13th century. Story of a civil, page, or volume 4, page 505. This was a typical pattern throughout most nations. During the first 15 centuries of Catholicism, there were some in the church who favored plural marriages. Two of the principal reasons were, number one, because there were so many wars that left a surplus of women, and number two, 
The Christian soldiers and missionaries traveled into the heathen nations and saw firsthand the exemplary and beneficial merits of such a practice. If there ever was a time to consider law-permitting plural marriage, it is because of the disorder caused by war. For many centuries, the Catholic Church continually considered and reconsidered this issue. Kernkrauss reported, quote, but if there was a disagreement as to the natural justification of polygamy in natural law, there was general agreement. There was general agreement that should the male population be or decimated by wars or the plague, the Pope, after a special revelation from God, could sanction the temporary introduction of polygamy to replenish the earth. Dun, Spatis, and the Summa Angelica are two of the many authorities given, giving this ruling. End quote. After polygamy was made, a sin, page 59. Shabazz reviewed some examples of polygamy in the Catholic Church. Quote, the early church fathers permitted polygamy in the 6th century. Dermiat, king of Ireland, had two wives and two concubines. Charles the Great had two wives and many concubines. In 1650, soon after the peace of Westphalia, when the population had been greatly reduced by the Thirty Years' War, the Frankish Kriegstag, at Nuremberg passed the resolution that thenceforth every man should be allowed to marry two women. King Constantine and his successors all had more than one wife. All this is attested by history, end quote. Polygamy, a, rem- a remedy, or a right, page three. Catholic Charles V, King of France in 1500 to 1558, not only imposed monogamy in the people, but made polygamy an, a capital offense. Yet those who had committed adultery or whoredom were usually released and set free. At the 24th session of the Council of Trent in 1563, the subject of polygamy was one of the principal subjects for consideration. It was determined at this time that the Catholic rule of the whole church in all nations would allow only monogamous marriages. This ruling would mean that all polygamists who are converted to the faith must divest himself of all plural wives, this became a serious detriment to Catholic conversions. In every polygamous nation, and many who would have been converts refused to join because of this restriction. When Catholic missionaries taught Akbar, the great Mughal and follower of Muhammad, he was ready to accept Christianity until he was told to give up his harem. He thought more of plural marriage than he did of Catholicism. All this caused a rise to many writings defending polygamy. The subject is still an issue of debate among many Catholic missionaries and priests. The Protestant Reformation forced the Catholic Church to define its doctrines and to undertake the ecclesiastical reforms that had long been debated. End quote. American People's Encyclopedia, Volume 6, page 21. All of their doctrines, ordinances, and beliefs, including the anti-polygamy stand, were brought to the forefront and had been generally accepted ever since. These were ratified by the church in 1564. Between 1530 and 1580, the pressure against plural marriage grew more dramatically throughout the Catholic world. One of the final and decisive factors was attributed to Abbey Tossey, who in 1676 compiled a large two-volume rebuttal against polygamy, his observations came from the Arabs, Turks, and so he concluded it should not be practiced among Christians. His work, entitled History of the East, still stands as an orthodox view of church policy, and it lists four major reasons for marriage. They are as follows. Number one, procreation of children. Number two, 
comfort and mutual help. Number three, tempering of lust. And number four, a symbol of Christ to the church. Um, you may speak if you have anything to say. <laughs> I'm good. I was just thinking about how this is kind of like when I was over the road back in 2014, 2015, when we do the radio shows. And I would be driving down to Texas or wherever I was, and you'd be reading to me. Oh, yeah. It was fun. Um, Amberly yeah. is here, and she brought me stuff, and she wants to know where I'm going to hang her dream catcher that she made me for Mother's Day. Oh, yeah, I saw that today. Um, We will discuss that after I'm done reading for Dad, okay? I want to read with you. Okay, but um, this is more like adult reading stuff, and it's not really like fun reading stuff. <laughs> I know I hey, love reading, too. Um. <laughs> she says, I love reading. <laughs> yes. She um, got an award for reading. Did you see her medal? She did get a reward for re- or an award for reading. I was so proud of her. Yep. She's, She's in, uh, for the listening audience, Amberly is in kindergarten. Daddy's on the radio show. And she's asking me why I'm talking like this. I have my headset, their earbuds. And so she can't really tell. So she thinks I'm talking to her with everything I say. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, what are you doing? Which page are we on? Um, 130. Oh, so you're on the last page? Yes, I am. Would you like me to finish? Um, just a minute. Um, okay. Since we're on the last page. The phone lines are open for anybody who wants to call in. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can ask questions or make comments about the comment, uh, about the text that we're reading or uh, anything that has to do with Mormonism or Christianity or any of that sort of thing. Um We'll take those calls after my wife finishes the last page. And then if nobody calls, I do have a couple of things that I wanted to read in a minute. And I will try to get to Wellington and pull over so I can read them. Um, So just real quick, I've got people that ask me questions on the Facebook all the time. I literally have no time to, I mean, uh, very little time to actually read, but I do read. I read them all, but I just don't have time to to type them out, and I'm using my phone to, I don't, it's been so long since I've been on an actual computer, I don't even know, but um, I do (laughs) want to respond to things, and I was thinking, well, heck, you know, um, I wish that they would call into the radio show. I mean, anybody can call in. It's a New York area code, you know. So if you've got a cell phone and it has long distance, you can call. But um, but I'll try to answer this one uh, person's question that he had for me as soon as we're done with the reading. 
And then, um, like I said, if anybody has any questions or comments, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. And I have about five miles until I get to can pull over and uh, and read the stuff that are the, you know, the, the question that this particular individual has asked me uh, about the Mark servant and some other things as well. So, all right, uh, I'll mute myself and you can get into the last page of the reading for today. Okay. <clears throat> he fails to point out that each of these purposes can also be achieved in fertile marriage but are unavailable to those women who can't find an unmarried monogamous man. Philosophers, civil officers, and leading Catholic churchmen have failed to solve the problem and plight of their surplus women. They seek every possible justification for monogamy at the sacrifice of the widows, spinsters, and other single women in their society. And that is the end of that page. Now we're on Chapter 12, page 131, uh, The Munsters defended polygamy with their lives. Do you want me to keep going on that? Uh, you can give a little preview, and that'll give me time to get to where I can park. There's really nowhere to park on Ridge Road where I'm at right now. Okay. Uh, the Munsters defended polygamy with their lives. Of the several different polygamous advocates in societies, none has proved as unusual and interesting as that of John Bockelson. Bockelson. John of Leyden, and his Anabaptist followers in Munster, Germany, during the mid-1500s. Anabaptist was the name given to those who denied the, or the validity of infant baptism, among other things, and were the extreme left in the army of reformers. John Bockelson was... They also didn't believe that Sprinkle baptism was valid form of baptism, so they would do full immersion baptism because they understood what it meant to baptize, where that word came from. So they would do full immersion baptisms, and they didn't they didn't have a name for themselves, but they were called by their enemies the Anabaptists. Mm -hmm. um, and when the Catholic Church found out about what they were doing, baptizing. Uh, they, uh, the church would take them down to the water and baptize them until they drowned to death. That's how the wonderful Catholic Church decided to execute these poor innocent people. Nice. Okay. John Bockelson was born an illegitimate son of the mayor in a small Dutch town near Leiden, Holland. He was trained as a tailor, but soon ventured into other fields. He became rec or restless and traveled throughout Europe and later spent four years in England. He loved poetry and acting and soon found his gift as an eloquent orator. His success came quickly when he became a preacher in the Anabaptist movement that was spreading across Holland in 1533. The leader of this new revival was Jan Massey, or Matsey, who selected John for a mission to Munster, Germany, to convert the town from other Protestants and Catholics. John did just that. His success was phenomenal, and the town was soon converted to the Anabaptists. That is the end of your page. Yeah, and anybody can go ahead and uh, go to ogdenkraut.com 
And once you're on the main page, you can find um, where it says read Ogden's books. Click on that link at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. And uh, you can go down to Volume 4, and that is Chapter 12 in Volume 4. And, uh, you know, you can read that. Or there's like... 70-something books that are published there. Uh, I think that there's only a couple that weren't on site. Um, but pretty much everything that Ogden wrote is there. And all Ogden did is uh, he compiled, you know, information, early church leaders, history books, people from, uh, you know, quotes from Ellen G. White and other uh, historical figures and historians. So, uh, and then he gives some commentary on things, you know, and it's just really interesting. And I think people that are interested in deeper things can go there and learn a ton of information about seer stones and the United Order and prophets and the changes in the LDS Church and celestial marriage. You know, polygamy in the Bible, I mean, blood atonement, there's a ton. One of my favorite books on there is um, Mysteries of Creation, which is really great. And uh, as it is translated correctly, which is a book about the history of the Bible and how many different translations and the different changes within the translations you know, if anybody thinks that the Bible is the Word of God, I agree to the point that it is translated correctly. But unfortunately, people have some weird translations, and there are errors in the translations, and there are people's ideas and interpretations within the different translations which are incorrect and false doctrines, you know. So that's why it's so important for us to go uh, to God if we lack wisdom as James chapter 1 verse 5 says and ask God to find out the truth of things and then if we diligently search for the truth he will give it to us if we are willing to actually put the time in to try and understand you know what what it is that is the truth so um the guest call-in lines are open now, uh, 917-889-8827, and the uh, studio is open so we can see those uh, those phone numbers as they do call in if there are any, any callers that do call in. There's also a chat room for people to ask questions and make comments, but it keeps shutting down, and I don't know why. It's driving me nuts. Anyway, I am almost to Highway 6 off of Ridge Road in Wellington. So I'm just about to the point where I can can get to the questions that uh, the individual had. Now, they were telling me, I just go off of memory, they were telling me that um, a year ago they started um, getting revelation. And they thought that there were going to be this great prophet and all this. And I've heard this so many times. The fact of the matter is, when God opens up your ability to get revelation, you will start to receive revelation from God and from 
Satan and the angels on both sides. So anytime you get a revelation, you need to make sure it is from God. And you do that by believing it, even if it's from a bad source. If you believe it and it's from a bad source, um, and you tell God that you believe it's from him, the Spirit will withdraw from you, and you will be left to the buffetings of Satan. And basically all that is, is in James chapter, no, in uh, Galatians 5, two, uh, 22 and 23, it, it gives you the fruit of the Spirit, what the, the fruit of the Spirit feels like, and, and what that is, uh, and, you know, love, joy, peace, and these types of feelings. Well, the fruit of the adversary is the exact opposite. That's the buffeting to sing. When the spirit withdraws from you and you're left to anxiety and stress and anger and hatred and just those type of feelings, anxiety, that is from the adversary. That's not from God. And if if you believe that the revelation comes from God and you God that you believe that and the spirit withdraws from you and you feel the buffeting of Satan, going to feel those feelings. So then what I do when I feel that, I go back to God and I tell him, I believe false doctrine and I reject these revelations. And I ask you to forgive me for believing in false doctrine and I ask that the spirit return and usually the spirit will return. So um, the other one... um, I don't have to stop to answer this question. He wanted to know about the marred servant and how he thinks that there are many marred servants. The revelation talking about the marred servant is talking about one specific individual. It is not talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about the Davidic servant. The Davidic servant is marred in two different ways. First, when the Davidic servant comes forward, he is marred in his reputation because people think he's crazy and they talk about him behind his back and they tell everybody that, you know, don't listen to him. And they, everybody will, lots of people will reject him because his, um, he's being marred in his reputation. At the end of his life, he will be marred beyond, beyond description. That is one of the two witnesses that comes in the book of Revelations, chapter 11. The two witnesses that come to Jerusalem and they're put to death, they will be marred to death. And you will not even be able to tell that they were humans, hardly. And after three days, they will be resurrected for the whole world to see. And then those who accepted them as the servants that they were will be caught up with them in the rapture. So, um, can you still hear me, Kim? Yep. Kim. Yeah, I don't know. I usually break up a little bit right in this area, so I'm just making sure that you can still hear me as I'm speaking. Yeah, you're clear. All good. All good. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, so that's that's what that is. Uh, and I'm glad that he asked me the questions. Now, if there were other questions that people have asked me on Facebook, I don't know because I didn't really read a whole lot on Facebook today when I got up. Um, just I'm just tired. So uh, as soon as I got up, I had some food and got showered and 
got ready for work, and now I'm at work. So um, if I have time, I'll try to answer. But this particular individual, he asks me these really long, 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 long questions, and there's so much stuff in there usually. I'm, I'm like, okay, he wants me to respond to all this, and I'm just – I don't have time to sit there and type it out on my phone. That's what I use to read, you know, Facebook. So I thought, well, I'll just get on the uh, on the radio show. And he does listen to them every day, and he is grateful for that, you know, that I do these. So and I thought, well, I'll answer his questions through the radio show. So as far as I can see, we don't have any callers. Here. And uh, if we don't have any callers, then I'm just going to end the radio show for today. I'm just uh, refreshing this studio thing here. Yep, it's just you and me, no callers. So, all right. Well, uh, is there anything that you wanted to say before we end the program for today, Kim? No, not particularly. I think it's all interesting. It's a lot of history. Um, and I know you were talking earlier about the scriptures earlier and how a lot of it's left up to interpretation. And it's not even just the interpretation of you reading what other men wrote. Um, you know, if you have any experience getting revelation, um, some of the revelation is a little bit um, different according to whoever's giving the revelation. So God uses the tools to speak to his people, but even the tools themselves, you know, interpret things the way that they feel like God is trying to say it. Well, so, okay, so God doesn't speak. Well, okay, I've had God give me revelation in a couple of different ways. He's spoken to me face-to-face. He has spoken to me not face-to-face, and I hear his words in English. Then there's revelations he gives me where I know what he's saying, but he's not using words. And it's up to me to put them into my own words. When he does any of those things, what I do is I go back to him and say, this is what I believe you are saying to me, and ask him if it is correct, line upon line, precept upon precept. Because I actually, he's told me things before, and I'm like, oh, well, wait, you mean, and then I'll tell him, and then I'm like, this spirit will start to withdraw from me, and I'll be like, okay, can you please explain it to me again? You know, because I've got, I don't know what it is, like, I've got a lot of things going on in my head, and it's ADHD or something, I don't even know, and I'll put my own crap in there, and I've had, I know other prophets who have done the same thing. They will add things and when I'm reading revelations, especially like um, translations and stuff, I'll be reading translations from other seers, and I will see where they have gone, and it's not from God. You know, and they've gone off on this other tangent or something. And I know how to discern that, and I understand how that happens because I know how this works. So... um yeah, whenever you get a revelation, just ask God if this is what he means and this is what he said. 
and get confirmation line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and, uh, you know, work it out. It's, you have to work it out. It's not just something that falls into your lap. Also, Satan loves to give revelation. So, anyway, I'm going to let it go at that. I'm going to start the end of music, and then we'll be back on tomorrow with Chapter 12, The Monsters. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. God bless, and goodbye. Thank you.